0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast, created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthew.3cr.org.au. And a very
1: warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast.
2: A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they
1: trade in is not wheat.
3: They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism.
2: I think it's really important
4: to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations
1: for corporations.
5: Union forever defending
6: our rights. Down with the left
1: If you think the ABC's left-wing, don't listen to this program.
6: Solidarity breakfast, seven thirty to nine a.m. Saturdays,
2: three CR, eight fifty-five a.m streaming and 3cr digital podcast or audio on demand and of course the website solidaritybreakfast.org.au
7: solidarity forever
3: Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. And uh, today we're going to kick off, as we have for numerous weeks now, with some reportage of uh, some of the speeches at, uh, in fact, the Sydney rally uh, of uh, pro-Palestine rally in Sydney on the 25th. Uh, It's contributed by the indefatigable... Uh, Vivian Langford from the Climate Action Show. Uh, it's uh, quite an appalling uh, situation uh, now in Palestine, uh, and of course uh, we've just heard of uh, um, open fire on uh, people uh, trying to collect rations. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the uh, Pal- uh, the Israelis, uh, true to form have uh, tried to spread seeds of uh, doubt by uh, using the uh, sense of denial, saying that uh, all these people who were killed weren't shot, they were actually mowed down by the aid vehicles. Uh, Of course, this is not true and verifiably not true. Uh, Interestingly, on a very personal level, I put up a... uh, a sign on my uh, front windows uh, saying stand up with stand with Palestine and someone had blue texted on the window a uh, hate mob uh, which I then uh, rubbed off but I was thinking how bizarre that uh, standing up for Palestine standing up against a genocide is considered to be uh, spreading hate quite a bizarre kind of um, cross um, Uh, a thing where you you are being accused of the uh, action that is actually contributing to this genocide. Uh, Obviously, there's this sense that it's not really true, that uh, it's all lies. Um, uh, It's horrifying, in fact. So we're going to hear some voices from... Uh, that rally um, and uh, just a reminder that there will be of course the Sunday rally at the steps of uh, State Library on Sunday at 12 and they are calling for people to bring pots and pans uh, and uh, I guess wooden spoons to make lots of noise uh, on that particular event. Uh, after that um, rally at 12 uh, 2 30. There is going to be a rally outside the Education Department, which is just up there at uh, 2 Treasury Place, a calling for the uh, removal of uh, uh, the uh, war educational processes in our schools, which is, you know, a, uh, a very uh, insidious. A move to make Australia part, uh, an integral part of the American war machine by not, uh, but through our educational processes, in uh, schools, uh, kids as young as primary, as well as leading into our manufacturing areas where we're going to have a war-led recovery. Apparently, this is insidious stuff. Anyway, we're going to move on after that to a chat I had with David Sprigg from um, Queensland Waging Peace. Uh, they were raided by the counter-terrorist uh, police um, before doing an art installation at Boeing in Brisbane. So we're going to find out about that. I'm going to talk to Brendan McCleary hopefully, from Queer Photo, Photo Australia, where uh, uh, all around us, we've got these fabulous panels of photos, uh, and it's particular there's an epicenter in the west of uh, queer photo uh, speech uh, uh, talks as well as um, uh, walks. Uh, around queer photos, and uh, we're going to hear more about that. Uh, And then we're going to finish off... Oh, this is the week that was, of course. Uh, And then we're going to finish off with a chat with uh, Dr Michelle Maloney. She's from the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. They're running uh, some uh, seminars around how we could change the way we see the world, take it away from uh, being human-centric and uh, perhaps uh, healing towards, uh, uh, earth centric, uh, approach to a better future. So, you know, a bit of positivity, shall we say, um, but first off Palestine, Sydney Rally, 25th of the second.
0: My name is jennifer yad I'm a proud Palestinian woman from Arrabe, Adha Jenin, a village in the south of Jenin. I stand in front of you today as a broken woman, but I'm not ashamed of that. I'm broken that we have passed 140 days of the Gazan genocide and nothing has changed. I am broken that we are approaching almost five months of bloodshed, of slaughter of 30,000 Palestinians. And the governments around the world sit silently as my people are carpet-bombed by the terrorist state of Israel. I am broken about the fact that I stood on this stage two weeks ago, warning you all that a catastrophe is about to take place in Rafah. And just this morning, we hear of Israeli jets targeting Rafah, with reports of lifeless bodies scattered in the streets of Rafah. I'm broken. That baby Maryam, a baby that was seeking refuge in Rafah with her family, she survived an airstrike that killed her entire family. And she was being treated at a hospital. And the video shows her looking around, terrified and alone. And the video right after shows her, sorry. The video right after showed her being cleaned and wrapped because she had died from hunger. This is the status quo in Gaza. If you don't die from an airstrike, you die from hunger. My baby nephew is around her age, and every time I hug him, I feel the pain of every Palestinian baby that has been robbed of basic human rights. And they ask us, why do we keep protesting? Why are we wasting police resources? Why are we enraged? Why do we lose, why have we lost all trust in our supposed leaders? Who are at the click of a button have cut off UNRWA funding to 2.1 million Palestinians facing a genocide. Penny Wong, the war criminal, she must only be named as a war criminal from this day forward, has now backtracked. She initially made the decision to cut off UNRWA funding to to Palestine, to Gaza. And now she backtracked and she admits that she did not have the full evidence when she made that decision. Our next speaker is a Palestinian that has suffered over the last four months and has lost over the last four and a half months more than an average person would lose in their entire lifetime. But he is still here. He attends every protest. He attends every vigil. He attends every demonstration because he's not doing it for himself. He's doing it for his family and for the people of Gaza. Please welcome Mohammed Kamil Zahra.
8: Seize fire now, seize fire now, seize fire now, seize fire now. I'm not gonna ask you what do you want, I'm gonna ask you what do you demand, so let me hear you loud and clear. What do you demand? What do you demand? When do you demand it? When do you demand it? My name is Muhammad Kamil Salim Salam 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 Idur Ramza I'm from a small city. You might have heard of it, known for its valiant resistance, it's called Khan Yunus. I'm a small, I'm from a small besieged enclave, but dignified Gaza. I'm from a country called Palestine that has been occupied but never conquered. I cannot be more proud of my beloved Palestine, of my beloved Gaza. I stand before you here as someone who's lost 70 members of the Zahrab family since the start of the genocide and many others before. May you never know the agony of not reaching your parents during a genocide. May you never know the pain of confirming that seven members of your family have been massacred through Al Jazeera News Network. Seven of them were massacred last week in northern Rafah. Peace be with them, peace be with, the, with their souls. They're with the Lord. They're provided by the Lord, the most merciful, the most merciful than any of this, anyone here in this cruel world. I will never forget them as, much, as long as I draw breath. You know what they call people like me? People like us? They call us emotional. They call us angry. You're damn right I'm angry. You're damn right I'm emotional. I'm livid. I'm enraged. Since October 7th, I've been trying to reach a logical conclusion. How are they enraged and surprised by our basic humane reaction to the insurmountable amount of grief by genocide? And I reached one conclusion, they said it at the very beginning, they see us as subhumans, they see us as human animals, just like the European settlers did to the African natives in Africa, they used fake science to draw their skulls as different from a normal human being so they can fulfill their colonial dreams. Last week, 127 scholars of genocide, human rights law, from Australia, from so-called Australia, have raised an urgent letter to the government. Act now, because so-called Australia is dangerously close to being legally complicit in the genocide following the ICJ ruling. And the response from the so-called government is exactly what you expect, it's crickets during nightfall. How dare the Albanese government stay silent on this genocide? How dare the current government not, doesn't even say the word genocide? How dare they utter the words of humanity or humanitarian aid? How dare you, Penny Wong, say that the situation is too far to judge? How dare you, Penny Wong, not even comment on the UN Rights reports that says there has been the acts of sexual violence in Gaza against our women? How dare you claim? only to listen to the evidence from the colonizer how dare you stand there and say the word humanity how dare you hide that there are 10 million dollars in the last five years according to DFAT official numbers of weapons exports to the terrorist state of Israel how dare you hide that but I will I will respond with a direct quote three-word quote from one of my favorite senators on this country and they're not from the governing party God bless Powerless cowards. But we will respond by continuing these rallies, by continuing these sit ins, these memorials, these vigils, and we will respond with the only language that they understand. We will respond with our votes. They have no place in our places of worship. They have no place in our mosque during the holy month of Ramadan in less than a month. Spare me your bloodstained piety. As I've shared with you before, communication with my family is very bad. It takes almost a couple of days just to have a single exchange of messages. Calls is a luxury that we don't have. But when I do reach my family, the conversation goes something like this. How are you? How are you? How are you doing? How's work? Why didn't you get married yet? And I stand here questioning so many things. How are you, my family, the Palestinians in Gaza? How are you able to think of others during your own genocide? What steadfastness your own? What courage do you possess? What resilience are you teaching us and the entire world? How are you teaching us life during your own genocide? My brothers and sisters, while we mourn our dead, like we said many times before, we have to fight like hell for the living. We must fight like hell for all 2.3 million survivors in Gaza, people in the West Bank, people in southern Lebanon. A few weeks ago, a little angel, six years old, Hind, was killed. Last week, Amal dur an angel from southern Lebanon, was killed. She succumbed to her wounds from an Israeli airstrike. We must fight like hell for the living while we mourn the martyrs. We cannot lose this momentum. Lastly, Palestinians, were very literal, straightforward people. One of our most famous dishes is literally called upside down because you put something in a pot and turn it upside down for serving. Our second most famous dish is called heated because you put something in the oven and literally heat it. So when a Palestinian tells you that we will not bow down to tyranny, that we have stood 75 years against this colonization. The last European settler colonial state, the last project better believe that word from a Palestinian at face value, that we will not bow down to this, regardless of the discrepancy of power. Before I go, let our voices rise as one. Let our voices ring true. What do you demand? What do you demand? When do you demand it? When do you demand it? From the river to the sea.
3: Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday.
4: With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people.
3: Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack.
4: We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday...
3: Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza.
4: Free Palestine. Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
3: You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. We're going to move to Queensland now. This was um, we received uh, notice that uh, on the 26th of February that. Activists faced Brisbane Court for protesting use of Boeing weapons in Israel. And uh, I got to speak to David Sprigg from uh, Waging Peace, who was one of the seven activists. And uh, we also learned about how the counter-terrorist police believe that waging peace is uh, a form of uh, terrorism, quite clearly. But anyway, let's, this is what David had to say. So, David, you're part, you're part of Wage Peace. So do you want to tell my listeners about what Wage Peace is about? Uh, wage Peace is
4: a group of people who are working for peace, um, and we do that largely through direct, direct action. Um, we have a campaign against Boeing, which is the third biggest uh, military weapons manufacturer in the world um, come from the United States. Um, Most people know them for their passenger aircraft but they also make many many military um, uh, hardware. They make uh, missiles, they make bombs, they make um, military helicopters. um, The one that was used, Uh, the famous collateral murder video um, which is one of Boeing's Boeing's attack helicopters, Um, they make the the Minuteman nuclear-armed bomb, drones, um, basically anything that's in the air, that's the military, Boeing's behind it.
3: And they're in Brisbane.
4: Yes, yes, they're in Brisbane. So um, Boeing have a partnership with the University of Queensland, Um, they have an institute in the engineering department in the university of Queensland. Um, they also have a office space in the city, um, in Brisbane and the lands of the yuggera and terrible people. And up up in Alderley in the, just north of, of Brisbane is, um, I have a subsidiary who are making drones. Um, they also have some sort of deal with the Queensland University of Technology too.
3: And I know that uh, Wage Peace uh, is pretty creative in raising awareness of uh, weapons manufacturing and Australia's connection to weapons manufacturing. and. Uh, in uh, the middle of January, uh, a group of 12 went to Boeing's office in Brisbane and uh, did an art installation, didn't they?
4: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, So we went to um, visit them in the city and um, we all hopped in the elevator. And um, when we got out, um, basically managed to, um, to uh, trick... The uh, reception person into um, opening the door for someone, and then we all walked into their foyer and um, occupied their foyer. And I did some, um, I did a bit of bit of creative, creative artwork. I um, had some wheat paste on me, and um, I applied the wheat paste to their uh, glass cabinets, um, which has got models of all their um, all the aircraft that. That Boeing had made, and um, and we we pasted up little little um, images of of like children that uh, victims of war, um, Palestinian children, um, and also little little signs saying Boeing arms genocide.
3: I, I was also taken by the fact that you did a poetry reading. I thought I thought they must have. Uh felt quite blessed that you did that.
4: Yeah, yeah. Strangely, the police didn't seem too interested in our poetry reading. Um, But, yeah, one person in our group just decided to continue anyway and and read the poetry. Um, And, yeah, we we sort of just um, held the space for a while. Um, We had a few banners as well and and a live stream. And... um, yeah, unfortunately, the, the police turned up quite quickly that time. Other times, have, they have, haven't turned up. And um, a few days later, we received charges for our creativity and solidarity.
3: But also, um, a week later, you were raided by the, well, a household was uh, ra- uh, raided by the counter-terrorism police.
4: Yeah, that's right. I was pretty shocked to to find a media release from the police saying that um, the the counterterrorism unit were investigating us. Um, it's also in connection with another action where people um, went onto the factory floor of um, Farah, which is an engineering company that makes crucial components for the um, bomber that's being used to bomb people in Gaza. Um, Lockheed Martin's F-35 bomber.
3: Talk about the raid. Tell me about the raid. What happened on the raid?
4: Uh, the cops turned up at our place at 6.30 in the morning and bashed um, um, on the door. Um, I was, was sick with COVID at the time. And um, so thankfully they they didn't um they didn't enter my room or or search my room, but they did enter the room of someone else who was at the um at the art installation and the solidarity action at the Boeing office in the city um, and um yeah it was it was a bit of a rude awakening um And, um, uh, ah, hard to put into words. Um, um, Understandably, um, people were quite upset and um, trying to understand why or how they've been able to to obtain a search warrant um, for such a... So, um, I don't know, a minor action, um, an uh, office occupation.
3: Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it means that uh, on one hand, maybe it's a sign that you're terribly effective, but on the other hand, it could be a sign that counter-terrorist police in Queensland are trigger-happy.
4: yeah well I, i'd like to think it's the former i'd like to think that that we've been effective and that we've upset someone in in boeing and um and that they have um they have put forward complaints to the police um and demanded them to act um but yeah i don't really know yeah yeah well we're, we're, here we are, peace activists trying to trying to stop trying to stop violence and stop bombings from happening, and we're getting pursued by the counterterrorism squad. It's very strange. Um, yeah, you know, it just confirms to me that that police one of police's roles is, is to defend commerce, even if that commerce is is making bombs for mass murder.
3: Uh, the charges that were laid against people in the Magistrates' Court, Brisbane Magistrates' Court, the other day, were violence-related, uh, weren't they?
4: Yeah, yeah. So the cops were asserting that, um, that we were violent. Um they... Um, um, a, a witness claimed to... Um, to have been shoved and and pushed backwards, um, which is not true. Um, and they're also they're also claiming that that wheat pasting is is violence as well. And um, one charge kind of impinges on the, the second charge. So, willful damage is, is the wheat pasting. Um, and um, and the second charge is to remain. After violence has occurred, um, so they so they can claim that they are claiming that the uh, wheat pasting is, is violent um, because it's damage to property. Um, so we're going to challenge it, and um, they're probably also going to use this um, assault, which we're also going to challenge. And we um, unless um, unless this witness is willing to perjure themselves, I think that that charge will be dropped as well.
3: Um, It's interesting because uh, Margaret uh, Pistorius in the um, media release puts it pretty succinctly, such actions were aimed at drawing attention to Boeing's significant role in manufacturing weapons responsible for the deaths of innocent civilians in conflict zones like Gaza, which is effectively very violent.
4: Yeah, it is. It's a strange um, juxtaposition considering the the massive violence that that they are facilitating um, and yet we're being told that we're violent. Yeah, it is. It is pretty strange.
3: Um, The federal government uh, has put out releases or had the gall really to say that Australia isn't actually exporting uh, weaponry to Palestine, or to the Israelis, um, but it's quite clear by your actions and others in Victoria uh, as well that this is misleading, isn't it?
4: Well, I've just been reading a, a bit of information from um, Michelle Faye and um, her research says that um, that Farah is a sole supplier for components for the F-35 bomber. And that F-35 bomber is being used um, on by the Israeli military to bomb Gaza. So um, it seems pretty clear to me that there are parts and components that are being used in this current genocide.
3: When were you here about um, the court case? What's going to happen with the court case?
4: Uh, we've been for a mention and um, we're requesting a brief of evidence. And, um, yeah, most of us are uh, quite keen to challenge it in court. And, um, yeah. Okay. And All
3: it's right. Probably so... not
4: going to happen until, like, June or July or something.
3: All right. Okay. So uh, keep us posted, David. Yeah, we will do. Thanks, right. mate. Thanks
4: for talking to me. That was no worries.
3: Thanks for having me. David Sprigg from uh, Wage Peace in Brisbane, who uh, had the uh, experience of uh, counter-terrorist police raiding their house. Uh, but, of course, genocide continues.
1: Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference, happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals, and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews, and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working-class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates, and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos, and rising imperialist tensions, It's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org.
6: A 3CR supporter. Don't you hear the bell? signal the warning? Here comes the storm, best we be gone. Out to the street where the legions are forming. I heard the call, more than ever before. If we just scream at our screams, we will forget what it means. Into your ego there are some wounds so much deeper than that there are brothers and sisters whose burdens are stacked so it's breaking their backs if we just scream at our screens we will forget what it from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR.
3: And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Brendan McCleary on the line. G'day Hi. Brendan, how are you?
9: Hey, I'm doing good, thank you. How
3: are you? I'm good. Um, very exciting, this uh, Photo 2024, part of Midsummer Festival. Tell us all about what's going on because we see it, all these great billboards all over the city at the moment.
9: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, Photo 2024 actually is its own festival um, that takes place 1st of the 24th of March. Uh, But what we did this year as well is we actually did a collaboration with Midsummer called Queer Photo um, that we opened up a bit earlier. So we opened it up with the Midsummer date, 27th of January, and it's still running through to those March dates. And that's all across the western suburbs, um, Footscray, Newport and Werribee. Um, But then, as you have and as you've now probably seen, the city itself has also now come alive with over 100 exhibitions across Melbourne and Victoria as part of Photo 2024.
3: Isn't it a fabulous idea? I mean, I ride along and I suddenly um, lift my head up and find these fabulous images.
9: Yeah, it's a really beautiful project in the way that um, we kind of work with the fabric of the city and transform parks and streets into these kind of epic galleries in a way. And do it in a way that kind of, there's people that see it that are deliberately seeking out the work, but then also a large number of the audiences are people that just kind of come across the pieces as they come, like on the side of Fed Square at the moment, we've got an epic 20 meter installation by um, Nan Golden, the American artist um, of her parents. On their fiftieth wedding anniversary, and there's just this beautiful, tender moment of care and love between them, kind of blown up huge on the side of a building.
3: It's lovely, isn't it? Um, but let's get to Queer Photo, um, which is one of the things that's interesting about this is that it's over in the west.
9: Yeah, so Queer Photo is um, across seven locations: of Footscray, Newport, and Werribee. We're working with um, Footscray Centre, Trocadero Project Substation, the Outside Gallery where we train station, um, where we park mansion has a beautiful epic installation as well and the Bar Gallery.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's, and there's a couple, I mean, we should focus on the fact that there's a couple of events that are on actually uh, uh, tomorrow, today as well as tomorrow, but then it's got other things happening right up till uh, the 24th of March. But you've got um, international photographers have come. They, uh, these are really important people, aren't they?
9: Yeah, that's correct. So we've worked with local and international artists. I always think it's good to have a mix of the two. Um, And as you've said, some of the internationals are actually flying in this weekend. Um, One of those is Clifford Prince King, who's a um, queer black photographer from America. He's based in New York. Um, But he's done a whole beautiful series of works based from when he was living in L.A. in the suburb of Orange Grove. Uh, And he's coming out. He's landing today, actually, um, and he's doing a talk tomorrow, a QA and a and a film screening of his work at the Forth Street Art Centre.
3: Yeah, 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 uh, Kiss of Life. That, that's at 1pm tomorrow. Gosh, he must be a, um, a limber chap to fly in today and then be able to perform tomorrow.
9: Yeah, I think that's why we did a one o'clock, not a morning
3: one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Um, yeah, fascinating uh, stuff. And that that actually is, uh, he's documenting intimate relationships in everyday settings. That's what he's uh, particularly interested in. And he actually is, uh, it, it's, it's around a collaboration with a couple who are living with uh, HIV.
9: Yeah, and that's also part of his journey and story as well. Um, the work that I mentioned, Orange Grove, um, is the photographic series that we're showing at Footscray as well. Uh, that was started back in 2018, which was also the year that Clifford himself was diagnosed with HIV. Um, and that is a body of work that looks at the house that he was living in and the community that he had around him when he was living in LA, looking at the way in which intimacy is like intrinsically a collaboration and looking at this really beautiful, warm lens kind of tender touch in the way that he captures people and the environment around him and looking in the ways in which they create their own sense of care and becoming as well.
3: Yeah, it's uh, very human.
9: Yeah, stunning work. And one of the things I like with Clifford's work as well that he speaks on is a lot of the images, he um, kind of uh, doesn't show you the face of the person because he wants people to be able to see themselves in the image.
3: Oh, as well. Yeah, that's really and he interesting.
9: speaks really nicely as well on the way that he makes work that he wished he could see when he was growing up. So, you looking at the way that he's kind of shaping the vision for the next generation beyond him.
3: Yeah, and and that that's part of this uh, whole experience is to be a sharing for people who are photographers as well. It's it's Um, That goes on to one of your panels, which is uh, people uh, sharing their experiences of working in the industry.
9: Yeah, there's been a series of, I think, about 30 free events that um, have been put together to uh, coincide with the exhibition. Uh, And it's just a really nice way of connecting in with the artists in the show, but then also other artists alongside and to create a deeper conversation as well.
3: Yeah, it's, a, and it's for the public, but it's also for uh, industry professionals. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's great. Um, Returning to uh, what's going on tomorrow, that's the 3rd of March at 12pm, if you're not going to the 1pm, or maybe you've got a car and you can go to the 12pm and then go to the 1pm, but at Wyndham Art Gallery you've got something going on there. That's really, it's a really interesting idea of having artists walk through the, their their works and then talking with people. <laughs> what a lovely idea.
9: Yeah, the Art Gallery um, has an incredible show by uh, Sunil Gupta um, called The New Pre-Raphaelites um, and Sunil is also actually uh, here with us at the moment as well. If you don't know his work, he's like an incredible um, kind of established queer photographer. Um, that work itself, looking at um, Indian people that were penalised due to some ridiculous colonial law that um, banned homosexuality and made it illegal and it was, wasn't overturned until about 2018
4: or something.
6: Okay.
9: Um, and so Sunil was kind of reclaimed the pre-Raphaelite style of painting in a photographic sense and done this amazing portrait series with those people, It's kind of the new pre raphaelites um, And like I said, yes, Sunil will also be here and doing a tour of his exhibition and doing a walkthrough. Uh, we also have at the whereby Mansion that I mentioned. Um, Carla Dickens, who's a rotary woman, has done a series of work called To See or Not To See, and it's this kind of self-portrait series that's going all the way up the uh, path towards the mansion, and so she'll go for a walkthrough with people and show, show them that as well.
3: It's very... Um, you're the curator, so you're a curator. This is a, a very... Um amusing and creative methodology that's being applied here?
9: Yeah, it's a nice, it's a fun way of like mixing between galleries and outdoor spaces and I think trying to take art into unexpected places and to kind of bring new audiences into that as well. I think one of the other really important things about the project is that whilst I'm the curator so I look after a lot of the outdoor work, we work really closely with partner galleries and exhibitions. Um, there's no way that I could look after 17 artists myself a bit much. Um, so there's Footscray Out Centre, Substation, um, Trocadero Projects, The Isles Run Space in um, and Windermark Gallery all came on board really excited and um, really put in a massive effort and have curated these incredible shows to go alongside as well.
3: I, 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 now that you bring up a practical element to this, These are all outside. A lot of this stuff is outside. How do you caretake all the beautiful uh, works that are out?
9: They've all been designed and engineered to be outdoor works um, in a practical way. They've all got an anti-graffiti laminate on them and they all just get wiped off. (laughs)
3: That's (laughs) That's fantastic. And, of course, uh, if you think about it, you've also supplied a huge amount of uh, work for uh, uh, people who have technically put all this stuff together.
9: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice team working behind it. I think as well, like just practically, I think people respect the work because it is it's beautiful artworks in the in the street. So you know, people give it the the respect it deserves in that sense.
3: Oh, I think so too. I I noticed that too. I think it's a a surprise, like uh, a beautiful surprise for people as they walk through the uh, the streets. I think people are really happy they're there.
9: Yeah, and I think one of those ones that I'm really happy with as well with Queer Photo actually is for Stray Out Centre. They've got such a real, um, the, quite a large number of works there and it's got just this real good like sense of like a festival vibe to, to the centre as well.
3: Yeah, I think so too. I've been down there and it's down by the river, so it's quite beautiful. And uh, if people wanted a nice thing to do, on a on an afternoon having a stroll down that way is um a great pleasure i'll have to say
9: yeah and those works down by the river there's daniel jack Lyons, who's an american artist who's done a work called like a river um that is he made with a queer and indigenous youth organization in the amazon rainforest um and he was really excited that this work is now being presented down by a river being called like a river and it's got this real nice connection to the location, uh, and Daniel's also actually going to be here in a couple of weeks. Um, that series is originally a photo book, um, and he's going to be doing some talks and workshops on photo book making
3: um, later. Uh, in March. Yeah, and and also he's doing a talk on uh, 11 a.m. Saturday, 16th of March at the Footscray Community Arts Centre, and he's going to talk about how he. Um, I mean, this is really fascinating that he was. Uh, Working with trans and queer communities living in the Amazon and explores indigenous traditions and modern identity politics. I mean, this is so fantastic! What what a concept!
9: Yeah, that was it's a really interesting project, um, and it's one Daniel was actually invited by the organisation to come down to Casa do Rio. That's the name of the um, organisation he worked with. Uh, And he was first really conscious of just being an outsider coming in and just like taking photos and leaving Um, That wasn't really an approach he wanted to do. So he made sure that he actually stayed In the community for a long period of time and has actually become good friends with a lot of the people in the project uh, and worked very closely with participants um, and the subjects in the images to Make sure that what is getting made is something that they feel self-determined and what they how they want to be represented as well um, there's a really beautiful work in there of a young woman named Samira who's, like, a leading youth Indigenous activist in, um, in Brazil. Um, there's just this, like, gorgeous work of her. And then alongside there's a trans activist back that's done this beautiful kind of pose in the river, I suppose. It's really nice body work.
3: Oh, it's lovely stuff, lovely stuff um and the other one will end up because you know you could talk about this forever. This is a fabulous project you've been working on uh, but how to preserve your queer history with the Australian queer archive w- What a lovely idea!
9: yeah, I think that's um that's a that's a talk that we're doing with the Australian queer archive and The one that I think it's really nice to think about is looking at the way in which what we make now, what we do now helps create the archives of tomorrow as well. Um, There's another artist, not in queer Photo, but in Photo 2024, um, Jay Davies, uh, is an artist that's also in the festival um, doing an exhibition at James Making Gallery. And I like their practice for this as well, is that a lot of the work that they do, they just take thousands of photos, is just documenting and creating the archive of Queer Melbourne, essentially.
3: Oh, it's fantastic. Um, that's on at 1pm Sunday, 17th of March at the substation. Now, I know that people need to... They're free. This is the other thing. It's all free, but they have to actually make sure that they make a booking so that they don't miss out.
9: Yeah, so everything is free, but just so you know, you understand the sense of numbers. um good for people to book in. And if people do want to book in it's just, uh, you can either go to photo.org.au um, or for the events, it's um, midsummer.org.au slash photo.
3: Thank you very much for talking to us this morning, Brendan
9: No worries, have a lovely Saturday Billy brewing
5: up the- Smoke gets up my nose The river's flowing endlessly Yeah, on and on it goes And the river's full of clouds today So is the sky That the sun is trying to make its way To you and I Here I see reflections on the water Of Eucalyptus I am this country I shall return Time and time again Until the
6: end Until
5: the end Of my wandering White birds sitting on a limb From the water shining black And every time I looked at him I'd seen that he looked bad Kookaburra starts to laugh Somewhere in the trees And the river's like a looking glass. And I need more days like these Where I see reflections on the water Of Eucalypse And I am this country's daughter And I know this I share to the end.
7: Am I A week Solidarity Bricky Team Listener, when again before we resort to satire, let's acknowledge sadly the Zionist slaughter and genocide backed by its supporters including Australia continues relentlessly. A week No, no, weeks and weeks and weeks. Way back in the early 70s, we stood in the John Curtin bar, toasting Zelda DiPrano and friends, celebrating victory. Equal pay for women. Now, a week, half a century later, reports showing massive disparities, a huge gender gap... One prominent employer bemoaning the difficulty it faces in attempting to find a solution. Well, naive economic ignoramus that I am, here's the week that was a solution, our solution, listener. If there's a gap between what you're paying men and women for the same job, just wait for it, wait for it. Pay women the same pay. Problem solved and all those hours of worry dissipated. It's like caring employers telling us they're so concerned about slow wages growth, easily solved. And no, no, caring employers, we know what you're thinking, but don't go near trying to close the gap by paying men less. On which, didn't realise that fossil, coalition MP Matt Canavan of coal, had become a union organiser and a champion of working people, until... Matt attacked the socialist tax cuts for not being generous enough. The cuts for middle troublous Aussies still left them behind inflation as wages had not kept up with the cost of living increases for years. The evil unions couldn't have put it better. Uh, So we must have a wage rise, Matt. Good God, no. We, We can't have greedy workers destroying the economy, especially small business, which is the backbone of this great country. Uh, So what are you saying? I'm saying this socialist government has failed workers by keeping their wages depressed. Wages are not keeping up with the cost of living increases. Uh, Then they must increase wages. Good God, no. I already told you that would destroy the economy. Uh, Matt, Matt, do you ever feel like you're confused? Uh, Certainly not. Where, Where did that come from? Never confused and always delivering for the week that was our old mate, Innes Will Cost, the workers of the True Blue Industry Profits Group. This time, understandably upset at an outrageous ACTU evil union claim for an increase in the 25% casual loading, supposed to compensate for all the benefits of full-time employment, holiday pay, sick leave, superannuation, etc., with a workplace lawyer estimating the loading would have to be about 35% to compensate fully. Ignoring the minor fact, but in the areas where casualisation is uh, most prevalent, many employers not only don't pay the full loading or any loading, they don't even pay the proper hourly rate. Inadvertently, of course, due to the complicated award system. Anyway... The old Innes responded with his usual balanced concern for the lazy, avaricious workforce. An increase will impose unjustifiable and potentially unsustainable costs on employers. Making casual employment more expensive won't create more permanent work. It will just result in fewer jobs. And with that, Innes delivered his brilliant verbal coup de grace employers aren't a magic pudding that can just keep delivering. Ouch, evil unions cop that. Although the old Innes has become a bit of a problem for satire. No need to put words in his mouth, just just quote him directly. He does it himself. He takes all my work out of it. Meanwhile, Treasury announced wages are the main driver of inflation. Obviously, that massive 0.9% increase last week reflected as 6 or so percent in costs. It's all the workers' and evil unions' fault, nothing to do with the poor, innocent, caring employers who have suffered unwarranted barbs like greed and ripping off poor dears. This led to the poor, suffering, caring employers calling for Uh, Well, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline Tuesday says it all. Keep lid on the minimum wage, business urges. Proving caring employers are not a magic pudding that just keeps delivering. Innes is so wise. Although, can they explain why wages, the price of labour, are the only price that should not increase as the prices of everything they are supposed to pay for increase? And as Matt has so elegantly pointed out, wages have not kept pace with cost of living increases for years, so how can the... No, no, stop before I commit financial blasphemy. Cos, Treasury and innocent, caring employers understand all this. And good to see big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital not rush to the workers' defence, but good on him. He knows troubler wuzzies are doing it tough. So tough that our very filthiest rich of the filthy rich, poor Gina Harthart, joined other resource billionaires in calling for government subsidies and corporate welfare for those parts of their businesses that have seen prices fall like, uh, like nickel. But Gina doesn't just hold out a hand for handouts. No, she offers a wise solution for all of us, continuing her long and appreciated commitment to the common good like ensuring the filthy rich aren't burdened with crippling impositions like taxes. Well, this week, she attended the Conservative Political Action Conference in Maryland, raided the petty cash tin for the $1,500 cost, and told us former U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world Big Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Donald Trump or the Paul's one-and-a-half-hour speech was... One of the best I have heard from a politician. He is authentic and brave. To me, it's about we need him for the world. The other leaders couldn't stand up to the problems worldwide like Trump or the poor could. See, like Innes, no embellishment required. It came straight out of her mouth. Oh, when she was regaled in the Republican colours. Toyota joined the line of exhaust pipe emission supporters complaining new vehicle emission standards must be slowed down, will cause massive increases in vehicle costs. Emission standards to be phased in over several years, eventually slowly catching up with countries, well, almost every country in the world, countries like the US of, which have had these standards for half a century. We're going too quickly, the exhaust pipe industry complains. We've mentioned before, after 50 years, what's their definition of slow? Given these manufacturers are meeting the standards in other countries, can't see the problem. Just send the same cars to Troubluwazi. That's ridiculous, they stammered. What are we supposed to do without gas-guzzling polluters? Must be wrong, because my interpretation of the long phase in is that that's been taken care of. In the, oops... Bad case of premature espatulation department, the Caring Business Class Party baying mob led by Big Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Constable Peter Duffer and Deputy Susan Lees and Dregs declared the Dunkley electorate would collapse under an avalanche of crime perpetrated by no-proper papers coup jumping illegal boat people after one of the no-proper papers criminals released due to the socialists, with a bit of help from the High Court, was arrested. No one in Dunkley was safe from these monsters. They spat across the chamber. Then, oops, oops, case of premature espatulation. The police announced they had arrested the wrong man, the monster was innocent, Dunkley was saved. Leaving Pete and Susan maybe, no guarantee, but maybe wishing they had followed the government's policy on this occasion of not commenting on a matter before the courts, which very soon was not before the courts. Then again, the police action was also out of character. Why not the usual practice, just frame the poor bastard, concoct the evidence and bash an admission out of him? They're going soft. Thankfully, the highly intelligent readers of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin will never know Pete and Susan made total idiots of themselves. It covered the story by outlining the details of an earlier case for which the man was convicted, showing therefore the electors of Dunkley were in danger of being slain in their beds if they vote socialist. Guess what this means, listener? As part of continuous improvement, we have made some changes to better align work activities. Ignoring the split infinitive, It's BHP, the big bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, speaking for sacking, or sorry, sadly having to let go heaps and heaps of workers, mostly in health, safety and environmental areas. Understandable, because the health, safety and environmental bits can often be a barrier to the profits and pollution bits. Fellow Russians were whooping it up with the exciting announcement at their big supremo Lukashenko to kill the opposition that he would run yet again, meaning like his mate putting the poison next door, he will win again. The votes are already counted. Oh, and if any Belarus or Russia for that matter was considering running against them, it'd be a lot safer to run out of the country. And our very own keeping a safe and secure agency told us a politician had acted as a, a spy for an enemy country, traitor, making us aware that apparently we have enemy countries. Didn't say who. We have to speculate. The U.S. of His Most Gracious Majesty's home country, who? True to form, Constable Duffer told us he knew it was a socialist MP and evil China was the enemy. Uh, So we should stop trading with them, Pete. Of course, like, not. That trade's worth, like, you know, trillions. No, no, like, keep trading, but, you know, like, just bond the shit out of them, like, you know. The worry is, Socialist Minister for being offensive and train-killing Richard Moore's The Bad Guys goes out of his way to make Pete look like a pacifist. Finally, how could we forget... Former big supremo scummo resigned after 16 years on the plush seats, telling us Judeo-Christian morality and the dear baby Jesus had guided his every decision. So clearly, the dear baby Jesus wanted no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people, many fleeing true blue Aussie invasions on the U.S. ob's coattails, to be treated with utter cruelty and inhumanity. And also, clearly, loves and blesses Blatant Liars. He's heading back to the corporate world, which is welcome to him, to continue his lifetime of utter failure. 16 years too long, and good riddance. Good morning.
3: I love that. (laughs) 16 years of utter failure. (laughs) No mincing of words, Kevin Healy. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're going to finish the program up with a chat I had with Dr. Michelle Maloney. She's part of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. It's a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to creating earth-centred systems change by Increasing the Understanding and Practical Implementation of Earth-Centered Governance. And they're running a four live classes held on Tuesdays in March online. I think that's mainly the truth of the matter. And um, uh, I thought that it would be worthwhile hearing a little bit of a positive approach to systems change when it comes to... Uh, what's going on in the earth at the moment. Now, one of the reasons for why I wanted to talk to you, Dr Michelle Maloney, is because there is a great deal of concern about what's happening in the world, in the environment, and there is a really strong uh, hold on the world economy uh, by people who are extractivist and who want perpetual war. Now, this is a a, um, fraught Uh, scenario. Uh, And it's just a lovely idea that uh, your organisation, the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, actually sees a completely different paradigm. Could you talk to my (laughs) listeners about this?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess I think one of the easiest ways to explain um, who we are and what we do is to come to one of the early theories that inspired our work. So there's a deep ecologist, um, a gentleman from the Western tradition, uh, Thomas Berry, Uh, many people know of his deep ecology work, but he also wrote a book called The Great Work, Our Way into the Future. And in that book, he actually explores what he calls the underpinning structures of our current governance system, meaning that which has emerged from Western thinking. And in this theory of his, he says that the underpinning structures of our governance system, looking at law, economics, education, and religion are all so profoundly anthropocentric or human-centered that it's forged the way that we think and act and interact with the living world um, and has done for, I would suggest, thousands of years. So earth jurisprudence is this idea that he talks about, this idea that we've reached a point where we've caused such devastation on the earth. That those of us, particularly in Western globalised countries, should be taking responsibility for rethinking those very governance systems. So um, the organisation that myself and others co-founded in 2012, the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, or AILA, Um, really formed up around this idea that we need to change our legal system, our economic system and all of these underpinning systems. So through that lens and then really connecting to Australian ways of thinking. So here in Australia, if we want to critique these underpinning structures of modern society, we also have to look at the impact of the British Empire when it came to this continent on the pre-existing peoples, the first peoples of the continent. So, Ayla and my work is really interested in this critique. How do we help people understand that um, the way we are now it hasn't been the way we've always been, and it doesn't have to be the way into the future? And how can we, in as best positive way as possible, show people? Um, that much of the work they're already doing is part of the solution and that there's also other ways to really um, look at our system, rethink what we're doing and change what we're doing, sort of transition by design. And it's holistic. It's not just looking at climate breakdown. It's also looking at biodiversity loss. Um, But it's also a lot of our work is based on love. It's really we do most of us love the living world. Even if you wouldn't classify yourself as an environmentalist, you'd probably choose on weekends to swim at the beach or go for a bushwalk or do something occasionally in in the living world. And it's that love, that connection of place that we need to nurture and support and then from it work back out and rebuild our thinking and our society. And again, in the Australian context, we are lucky enough to live on this continent with people who are part of the oldest continuous culture on earth and um, their governance systems, which I've been learning a lot about by working with Indigenous elders like Mary Graham, is quite remarkable, and for people of the Western tradition like myself um, to really see examples of just completely different ways of organising ourselves, um, it's quite interesting and really inspiring. Doesn't mean we have to be like other cultures. Here in Australia, we've got an opportunity to to build the best out of all of our uh, ideas, I guess, and try to try to fit ourselves into this beautiful place and not try to be anything else for any any other country. So.
3: Well, you know, it's actually very tough to do this because it's about uh, changing the culture you you live in. Um, I mean, when you just were speaking then, I was thinking about how there's a whole lot in the city, there's a whole lot of artificial grass because it's so containable. But when it's really warm in the city, uh, people seek out the tiniest, smallest patches of real grass.
2: Yeah. Oh, look, there's so many examples of, actually, interesting, an Indigenous elder the other day said to me, right thinking, wrong thinking. And it's actually reflected in Tyson Yonker Porter's latest book, Wrong Story, Right Story. This idea that deep down, we kind of know who we are. And once a lot of the information is more available to us, we get it. But how do we make that change? And simple examples of what we're doing in places that really don't make any sense and don't support life. Um, are things like fake grass because it's easy to manage, you know, crazy imported lawns across our suburban uh, communities when people like myself kind of tear up the grass and start planting local plants and and flowers and pretty things so that instead of spending money, getting pesticides to kill the grubs that come up and eat your precious grass, why don't you actually nurture all the life there and support biodiversity? And not only that, it's beautiful and you get to enjoy creatures visiting your yard. So it really is simple ways, but also then joining up that systemic underpinning way that our society has emerged over 2000 years. And uh, someone whose original training was in a law degree, um I, I and history too i'm very interested in where ideas come from and why we do things the way we do and how do we unpick some of it and restitch it in a way that might make more sense to sustain life so yeah i, I like that the fake grass idea of um humans yeah, yeah. being in control of their environment it's a bit tragic isn't it
3: yeah it is but uh, also just on uh to uh, take an oblique look i'm reading some books are fairly light books, but they're interesting books because they're set in England in 1381. And uh, what one of the things that's so compelling about it is how repulsive and um, uh, complicated their um, penal system was in hurting people. <laughs> they had yeah. really complicated, very cruel... Uh, methods of hurting people and a great deal of disparity between the wealthy and the poor and
2: incredibly so yeah yeah
3: and I imagined this idea wouldn't it be interesting if the Pacific Islanders and the Australian people came and took over England instead of the other way around how different it would be but of course they never would have
2: no, no, that, and and look, this—you've just touched on a few points that are dear to my heart. Number one, the history of the English uh, societal structures, the invasions, the legal systems that emerged from it. I'm actually researching a lot of that at the moment for a book that I'm working on with Indigenous elder Mary Graham. Um, but also that punishment idea. So certainly, let's be honest: um, the ideas of crime and punishment, the ideas of political prisoners, the ideas of injustice and hierarchy. This is what built. Uh, modern Australia. You know, people know this, but, you know, we were identified as as a str- sort of geostrategic place, but also somewhere for the Brits to take folks they didn't want in their own country anymore. Um, I myself, am a descendant of some of those folks who, you know, stole a horse or stole some bread. And interestingly, just to go off on a cheerful tangent, I'm actually um, reading Watkins' Tench uh, 1788. Watkins' Tench is uh, one of the Marines who came over with the First Fleet and is recognised as one of the more compassionate uh, British folk who came to this country with curiosity instead of just sheer. But even so, even in the first couple of chapters, I I was horrified by their attitudes towards nature, but also just their attitudes towards each other. You know, one of the convicts stole some stuff, so they executed him. I mean, in a time when they were facing starvation and they needed every hand on deck, their attitudes meant they would still kill somebody, for stealing. It makes no sense at all. And it links to, um, again, Mary Graham, who's a dear friend, and we're working on this book together. One of our first uh, meetings when we sat down together and started to talk about how we might write together, what she said was, yeah, my people have been watching your people for some time. And it was a reminder that the cruelty, the cruelty of our people against each other, let alone what we then did to others, um, was something that set people aback and went why are they doing that to each other?
3: Yeah, it's astounding, why? isn't it? It's a psychological dilemma. Like a Western culture really needs to lie on the couch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, it leads us to why your, your organisation exists. And also the you're obviously invested in the concept of education.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, um, so I've mentioned what the sort of one of the theoretical inspirations for our work is, which is how do we restructure our society so they can be earth-centered? And by that we mean, how can we ensure that human beings can thrive and survive and feel good, whilst also supporting nature rather than wrecking the joint? Um, So education is a really important part of that, of course, uh, because we love to help people who are interested in learning more about what ecocentrism is but also how do they how do we all work together to unpick understand where we came from why our systems are the way they are and perhaps if i could say anything one thing we really love to do and i think we're good at is helping people really have that aha moment where we Kind of call out the obvious. We we show them what property law means in Australian society and why things are the way they are and where these attitudes came from. So education is really important to us. We often say that our sort of stated goal or mission in life is to increase the understanding and practical implementation of Earth centered or life centered governance um, with systems change across law economics. So the increasing of understanding is the education side. And then the practical implementation is we work with lots of small community groups who are really trying to rethink what does community governance look like for ecological health? How do they understand and handle a very top-down legal system that we've inherited? So so all of that education interest uh, turns up as lots of webinars. We do a lot of free webinars. Um, But, yeah, one of the reasons you reached out, which I'm excited to talk about, is this year we're running two of our courses. One is called Introduction to Earth Laws. And the second one, which will be held a bit later in the year, is Earth-Centered Futures. So the IEL, or the Introduction to Earth Laws, isn't just for lawyers. It's actually about, it's a four-week course held with live classes on a Tuesday arvo from four to six Queensland time, but also recorded, so anyone else who wants to, to have a listen. And it's really an introduction to Earth jurisprudence, this idea of looking at our governance and what is the role of law or governance or rules in our society? Why are they so important? You know, how do they shape our entire society, our entire culture and play into culture? And then um, a little bit of a, a peek at some of the Western concepts of property and control and hierarchy and, and how our legal system in Australia works. And then the rest of it, we look at really interesting ideas like uh, rights of nature, legal personhood for nature why people are advocating for ecocide. And um, one of our four classes is on Indigenous perspectives of law and um, some beautiful insights from amazing Indigenous writers and guest speaker Mary Graham will talk about that sort of um, the Aboriginal philosophy, which is so very different. And, um, yeah, many aspects of it uh, would absolutely enrich Australian society if people understood. the relationist ethos and what caring for country is all about so so that first course not just for lawyers but lawyers and law students do occasionally join but normally we just have a very general audience we have small classes maybe 30 people on average we do it all online um, and it's all super friendly and fun and an easy platform to access readings and videos so it should be another fun year for the courses i hope
3: so over the time that you've been doing this because you've been here for since two thousand and twelve. Have you seen uh, changes in attitudes? Have you seen some sort of movement?
2: Absolutely. We often talk about rights of nature as a spearhead concept, meaning it seems to carve open an awareness among people. Um, And there's been a profound change in people's understandings of this concept. So very quickly in our Western culture and particularly in our law and economics, we look out across a landscape and see it as property. You know, this area uh, might be fenced. It might have had a rainforest and they've cut all the trees down. And we don't question any of that, the fencing, the land clearing. Well, the well a,
3: as it was said to me as a kid, because I was brought up in a dairy area, a farmer yeah. looks at a tree and he, calcu- he she calculates how many uh, fence posts they can get out of it.
2: That's exactly right. And that is very much the Western tradition. Um, whereas what we look at, um, what we're interested in, um, and what I've seen change in is people understanding that not only is the environment something that we should protect, but actually the, envir- the environment, which is itself a very <laughs> difficult term, um, the rest of the living world has an inherent right to exist with or without human beings being around and it's called intrinsic value, and ecocentrism isn't new. You know, we've had wonderful deep ecologists talking and writing about this in the Western tradition for probably 80 years, but the difference in Western society is it's so entrenched. You know, you literally cannot live anywhere um, in a a house, in a caravan, in a flat, um, without engaging in the private property system. So what we have seen, um, the stories of optimism for change, a massive increase in people being interested in ecocentric and intrinsic value um, systems. And certainly over the last 20 years, I've been working in uh, sustainability and environmental issues for about 35 years. The last 20 years i have seen a massive rise in people genuinely interested in rethinking the system, but also in Australia really getting to know what Aboriginal people's worldviews are um, what some of their traditional laws were and are, and what could our society look like if we rethink the rules we live by and change um, the practice, change how we care for things and look after things. So I've certainly seen in our 10 years a remarkable awakening amongst many people that environmental issues aren't just one thing at a time. We need that systemic, holistic change. Um, certainly I feel a lot of optimism when I see the sheer number of um students, academic writers, and other researchers looking at earth-centered concepts, rights of nature, legal personhood for rivers. So there's a real interest in it. In terms of practical change on the ground, that's going to take a little longer. The very nature of our legal system is very stable and conservative in the terms of it's hard to change our system. Um, That doesn't mean it won't change. Climate change is forcing everyone to think, not just one campaign at a time, but what do we do to change our society and how do we rethink um, what we're doing to the living world? So I think there's been positive change. It is particularly hard in Australia because our governments are so locked into fossil fuels and corporate control of resources. Um, you know, our, by its nature, our legal system is not super friendly or welcoming for local communities to protect places. They continue to have to fight to do that.
3: You've, Connected the thing that's most important, which is uh, the law, which is really hand in hand with economics, because yep. the law, law law allows the economic framework to just beaver along as it prefers to do. Well, I'd
2: go further than that. I'd go further. I mean, I think a lot of people think that if you change the law, you'll change society. And although I'm, I have background as a <laughs> no, lawyer, no, it's the it- other way around. <laughs> It's not, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of both because our laws have emerged through the British legal system to protect the things we value and because it was hierarchical, because um, from a very early times, you know, through the Anglo-Saxon emergence in the 700s, 800s, um, they have wanted to protect elite control of land. That's why feudal systems were so powerful and people assumed they were normal. To come back to your core issue, um, the world is changing. There are things we are doing and things that everyone can do and attitudes in many, many areas are so much better than they used to be. But changing our legal and governance system is, is the true systems change. You know, it's not just changing one law here or one law there, although even that would be good. It's really understanding that our legal system reflects our values and it reflects the economic power of the elite In Australia, that's governments and corporations. Corporations have a huge amount of power through their lobbying, through their influence, through their friendships, through their consulting revolving doors. Um, And and fundamentally, our legal system right this moment is geared to support extractivism and growth. And you're the weirdo on the outside if you're seen to be trying to challenge that and protect the living world against so-called economic development. Um, so destroying a forest and turning it into um, something else, preferably lots of real estate or housing and selling it in ridiculous prices is still favoured in our society. So so it's hard well, to make change, but it is possible.
3: Local Indigenous communities in Australia were the poster child for sustainability, it's quite clear, because they wouldn't have been able to maintain the uh, environment that they had at such a high level
2: before yep. European... Uh, invasion. And themselves, themselves, Europeans who came over noted. um, I mean, many of them wrote in a derogatory fashion because they could only see the world through their sort of puritanical British lens. Um, But they recognized eventually that they were incredibly healthy people. They had healthy lifestyles. They're in better shape than our poor convicts carted over on boats. Um, But yeah, I'm a huge admirer of um, the governance system and the cultural system and the deep deep connectedness and the spiritual connection uh, that Aboriginal people nurtured and supported and and really built their entire um, societies upon. And the more you dig down into that, the more you can't help thinking, gee, what if we could do that in Australia? What if we had an ecological society that supported life, the human beings in it and everything around us and the uniqueness of our bioregions? That's another thing we're really passionate about is really turning the legal system on its head and saying, what if? We had greater community-based governance to care for places and to fend off the kinds of corporate invasion that still happens when outsiders come to a place, wreck the joint, um, and then everyone else is left fixing it up, managing soil, trying to clean up water, uh, repair themselves after fracking, if that's even possible. So it's that governance structure, the belief system and ultimately more people who rely on local places having a greater say. Because no matter what you think about your neighbours, most people don't want their local water supplies uh, contaminated or destroyed. Even if we have different views, we nearly all share the need to live, breathe and eat. Um, And those things um, can be protected if we we structure ourselves a little differently.
3: And uh, that was part of the chat I had with Dr. Michelle Maloney. And if you want to get involved in uh, the educational process that they're offering. That's A-E-L-A, the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. Uh, That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Uh, Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with a bit of Mia Dyson, St Kilda Lament. Mm -hmm.